Good morning, especially those of you who are visiting. My name is Brandon Barrett. I'm the lead pastor here. And I spoke to one uh, visiting family on the phone this morning. They called for directions, so I, I hope you made it. They could still be out on 199. Okay, I see a, a, a hand. All right, my directions work. We'll warn you, the clock in the back is broken. It says 10 after 9, so we've got lots of time right here. This is great. <laughs> Uh, Our text this morning comes from uh, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verse 2 and then verses 8 through 11. If you happen to be using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find this on page 61. If you're just joining us, we're uh, well into a series on the book of Exodus. And we're talking week in and week out about how Exodus teaches us that God has come to set us free, that he leads us into a life of freedom. And we saw this early in Exodus as God takes his people out of Egypt literally setting them free from slavery. And we're seeing it now as we're going through the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments, too, are a gift to us to bring us into freedom. Now, I realize that might not be the way you typically think of them, but I think that's why uh, God gives them to us, and that's what hopefully is going to come to mind this morning as we look at the Fourth Commandment. So let's pray together, and then we'll read our text for this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness to us. And as has been mentioned for many of us, for us as a community, this is, has been a week of real shock and sadness. So, Father, as we talk about the Sabbath today, and as we talk about rest, would you even in the circumstances of this week remind us and give us the encouragement and the peace that comes from knowing that you have brought Nancy into your rest? Lord, we pray now that you would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Read verse 2, the prologue to the Ten Commandments, as we do each week, and then we'll pick up in verse 8. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Uh, this week, I saw on the CNN website a, a series of articles that they uh, had posted, and the title of the series was this, Having It All, The Work-Life Balance. And then the tagline went on, The line separating your job from your personal life is fuzzier than ever before. How do Americans cope with longer work hours, a sluggish economy, and constant tugging from cell phones in the Internet? Then it went on and had a a list of all the different articles you could read. Here are a few of them. Sleeping on the job. More of us are doing it. New grads at risk for crash and burn. Tips to reclaim elusive free time. Getting unstuck. Does your life need a coach? Time off for babies. Tough for many workers. Burned out on your job. Five warning signs. Imbalance is good, expert says. Addicted to work, how to break out. And finally, religious holidays, tricky for workers and bosses. 
Okay, now why did CNN do this series on work? And it's because I think we have a problem. Uh, now there are two things fundamentally wrong w- with the title of this series, Having It All, The Work-Life Balance. First is simply the beginning phrase of, of having it all, because isn't that the great illusion that we live under? That if we work hard enough, if we use our time well enough, that we can, in fact, have it all. Neglecting utterly, of course, that we are finite people with only so much energy, with only so much time, with only so much passion to spend on the things of our life. But that's an entirely different sermon. The second thing I wanted to focus on was the second half of that, the work-life balance. You hear the dichotomy that, that's implied there, the work-life balance. You have work, and then you have your real life. Uh, and biblically, that's a huge problem, because in Scripture, if you, if you were to go back to the first ch- couple chapters of Genesis, you would see that work is a part of the created goodness of the world. Okay, work is not a part of the curse. It's not a part of the fall. It's not a part of what went wrong. Now, something did go drastically wrong. Adam and Eve taking a fruit and plunging themselves and us, their heirs, into ruin and misery. And a curse comes on everything that we do. Work is now cursed. Work that was meant to be a delight and fruitful and work that was meant to work right is now frustrated. It's now incredible toil. And it's so rare in our lives that we get a glimpse of our work playing out as fully as we wish it could in good fruitfulness and success. So something's wrong with our work, but it's not work itself. That was given to us at creation as a good gift from our God. So they've set up a false dichotomy here, I think, of work and of life. I think a a true comparison or a true talk about balance instead of work and life should be work and rest because those two are integral to a full and balanced life. It's not a opposition between work and life, but it's a combination as we live between work and rest. And that's exactly uh, the combination of life that this, uh, that this fourth commandment brings us into today. It brings us into this question of work and of rest. So the fourth commandment uh, is about how to live life with a healthy with a godly rhythm of work and life. That's what this commandment's about. So we're going to look at three things to help bring that out. We're going to see that the fourth commandment, this will be no surprise, the fourth commandment is a command to us. Fourth commandment, it teaches us a lesson and it comes to us as a gift. Okay, so fourth commandment is a command, teaches us a lesson, it comes to us as a gift, and then we'll wrap up with a few uh, practical suggestions about what it means for us to keep the Sabbath in our own lives. Okay, first, fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath, is it's a command. So what's being commanded? Well, you look in those verses 8 through 11, you see the word Sabbath. The word Sabbath comes from a Hebrew word, Shabbat, which is a verb that means to cease, to rest, to stop. That's what the Sabbath is about, ceasing and resting and stopping. The fourth commandment tells us to take a complete break from our labors, for one full day every week. And though you're all still looking at me, I lost about three-fourths of you. I know it did. Fourth Commandments tells us that one out of every seven days is supposed to be profoundly different. You do some things that you don't do any other day of the week, and you refrain from doing some things on a Sunday that you do do on other days of the week. 
And for both Old Testament and New Testament believers interacting with this commandment, they've understood that this is the day of the week that's set aside for corporate worship, for doing exactly what we're doing right now, for gathering together to worship as God's people. To have room in our days for reflection and private worship as well. Okay, this commandment was observed in the Old Testament and it's observed today by modern day Jews on Saturday, on the last day of the week. Uh, this commandment, refer- uh, as it's written here, references creation when God rests on the seventh day, which in our calendar is Saturday. But as we see the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we know we're sitting here on a Sunday. That even within the pages of the New Testament, we see God's new uh, joined people of Jews and Gentiles who are now the church. We see people called out of the world, these Christians that now begin to worship on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And they do that because uh, Sunday is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. This is our celebration weekly of Jesus' resurrection. Now, one Sunday a year... We call it Easter. But we are really celebrating that every Sunday, the fact that Jesus is risen. And so even within the pages of the New Testament, believers look to this day and begin to call it the Lord's Day. That's how you see it uh, uh, described in the New Testament. But so for us, just as for Old Testament believers, this is also to be a day of rest and of worship. Now, interestingly, this is one of the most debated commandments among Christians. Okay, among people who say that they're trying to take the commandments seriously and live by them, this is probably the most debated one. I mean, think about it this way. Nobody ever really says, uh, says this, you know, I just don't know about the sixth commandment. I mean, there's something about not, God telling me not to murder that just feels so confining to me. Uh, you know, I, it's, it's getting in my way of, of me expressing myself. Um, you know... Sane people just don't just don't say stuff like that, uh, and you'd find that with most of the commandments that that many that most of them we look at those and say on the surface well that that just makes sense, but you find that this one this one about what does it mean for us to rest is incredibly debated even within the Christian world and I think that's telling for us. There's been an endless debate over how we're to keep this commandment. It was true in among uh, the Israelites in Jesus's day of. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that time and again Jesus ran afoul of the Pharisees, the religious professionals, because he continued to heal on the Sabbath. Time and again the Pharisees got all worked up because that was doing work on the Sabbath. John chapter 9, Jesus on the Sabbath, Jesus Jesus heals a man who has been born who is who was born blind. He's now 40 years old, been blind all his life. And he does it in this strange way. He never does any other healing like this. He spits on the ground and he makes a little mud. Puts it on his thumb and he, and he wipes it on the man's eyes and he tells him to go wash in a pool and he's going to be able to see and he does. Aside from being, um, you know, breaking your own sense of personal space as somebody rubs mud on your eyes, uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, you know, essentially, what have you done? Because among their Pharisaic uh, expansions on this command was the command that you're you're not to, you're not to spit on the Sabbath because it might make mud, which is a form of doing work. Uh, So people for centuries have gone to incredible detail to try to understand what exactly does this mean, and really when it hits uh, the road, what can I do and what can I not do? Endless debate about this. And and I understand that as we're sitting here, probably for most of us, that, that is our first thought. Okay, I'm supposed to rest, but what can I do and what can I not do? 
Okay, now I don't want to insult you, and I have the same trouble, so I'll insult me as well. This is a lot like the conversations that you have, especially with young, single Christians who are dating and who say, I know what the ultimate limit is, but what can I get away with? Right? It's that same kind of question. What, but what can I do? And I want us to stop for a second and just realize that's going on for a lot of us and say, wait a second, are we missing something? Because if we're jumping to that right away, are we missing something? Are we missing a trust that God would really give us a command that's for our good? And that maybe there's something instructive for us here. Now let me say too, as we go on and talk about work, Christians have always uh, recognized a, a certain number of categories of work that, that really must be done on a Sunday. And the way that's typically been described is works of mercy and works of necessity. That it's appropriate on a Sunday to do work that benefits people. When, 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 you see, when you see a need, a mercy need around you, you don't say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm really sorry that, that your tire is flat. I, I've got all the equipment in the back of my truck. I'll come back tomorrow when it's Monday. You know, what, what, what do you do? Christians have always recognized when you see someone in need, you stop and you help. It's wor- work of mercy and changing the tire is real work. We've also talked about works of necessity, which is why we've always understood that we need to have doctors that work on Sundays, and, and the hospital needs to stay open, and, and we really want our police and our firefighters to, to man their stations. We want to keep the military uh, protecting our country. We, there are a lot of things that have to happen in a modern society like ours. Somebody, I don't know how this works, somebody somewhere better be working on the electrical grid so we can still have lights on today. There are certain works of necessity that have to happen to make society go. Um, as one uh, commentator, John Frame, says, works of necessity are not just works of nece- that are necessary to keep us alive, doctors, firemen. Uh, they are works that keep human life on an even keel. We want our water to run. We want our electricity to run. And let me also say that works of necessity, in some cases and in some families, might mean this. The only way that you can provide for your family is that you have to take a job that requires you to work on Sunday. Now, unfortunately, we live in a situation, a culture, and a society where that is true for some people. Caring for your family is a necessity. But as soon as we say that, you all are thinking about how all the work that you like to do by some sort of strange twisting of that is really a necessity, right? Because we all think we fall into that category somehow. Uh, it's easily abused by us because there's a difference between I must work on Sunday to provide for my family and I must work on Sunday to get ahead in my chosen field of work and to earn the wealth that I think I need to enjoy this life. Those are vastly different things. But the pattern that we see here is that you are to rest. You're not to work. You're to lay it down on Sundays. Okay, our response to this command, as we've already said, why is it from so many of us that that we inwardly bristle when we talk about this commandment? Why is that? Why do we somehow feel caged in or resentful of this? Why? Why why does it affect us that way? Let me ask you a question, thought experiment. All right, pretend for a moment that you work for a company, and it's Thursday afternoon. It's been a long and difficult week. And at the end of the day, your boss comes out of his office and he says to all of you who work there, that are gathered there, he says, I know it has been a long and difficult week, and so I want you to take tomorrow off. Now, you can imagine what happens next. Groans. Complaints. (laughs) People throwing tomatoes. How could you do this to us? How could you tell us to go home and put down our work and rest? No, what would happen? People would be cheering in the aisles, and they'd be responding with, thank you. 
Or imagine this, and maybe you've been in, had conversations like this. You know your friends that you look at and you start to get worried because they are running themselves ragged. And imagine yourself sitting down with this friend and saying, look, you are burning the candle at both ends. You need rest. And they look at you with that sort of wild-eyed kind of craze and say, I just can't stop. I can't. Wouldn't you think there's something wrong with that? And yet for many of us, that's what we're doing every week all the time. We just can't stop and we just can't rest. Okay, why is that? Well, not only is this commanded to us, it's, this fourth commandment sends us a message. I think it tells us some things about ourselves. I think what we find when we resist this, there were people who tend to define ourselves, define ourselves by our work and a people who tend to dissipate ourselves in our recreation. We tend to define ourselves in our work and dissipate ourselves in our recreation because uh, as Christians have always wrestled with this, it has implications not only for our work, but in some ways for the ways we recreate on a Sunday as well. And uh, maybe that sounds strange on the surface, but intuitively it ought to make sense. How many times have you ever gone to do something that was meant to be fun and you came back more tired than when you left? I mean, you know, we hear that all the time from people going on vacation. You know, I need to come back and take a vacation from our, my vacation. Doesn't that sound strange? Doesn't that sound like there's something wrong with that? Well, ceasing, stopping, means entering into this full rest, this full stop. Not just a comma, not even just a semicolon, but a full period in our weeks that we might really rest. So it, it challenges us to stop defining ourselves by our work. This is not everybody, but some of us. You have trouble stopping your work because everything about your identity is built around your success in your work. Now that could be whatever happens at whatever office you go to or the shipyard or in the military here, wherever your place of work is. It could be whatever happens in that place could be for you if you're at home. It could be the work that happens for you in your home. That is the work that is wrapped around your identity. Uh, if you're a student, this is, this is your homework, this is your schoolwork, this is your athletic performance. Whatever your form of work is, whatever it is that you have so much trouble putting down, how often is it because if I put this down, I'm going to fall behind? And what does fall behind mean? There's somebody out there who wants my position. There's somebody out there smarter than I am who's just gunning to get what I've got. There's somebody out there who's going to make a better grade. Someone out there who's going to interview better, who's going to get the better job after graduation. Our identities are so wrapped up in our work. And so when we stop working, we have to essentially say, there better be more to it than this. There better be something that's going to show up to fill this vacuum that I'm suddenly feeling in my own, the own core of my own identity. God tells us to stop because he says you are not primarily defined by being a worker. Now think about how powerful this must have been for the first audience who heard this, for the Israelites, as they were brought out of slavery in Egypt. You go back to the first few chapters and uh, Exodus, you'll see phrases like this, that the people were suffering under this incredible onerous burden, that they were literally being worked to death seven days a week. And God comes to this people, 
for 400 years under the yoke of slavery, never even known what freedom is like. And he brings them out and he says, you are free people now. I am setting you free. And I want you to rest. I want you to take one day out of every seven and I want you to rest. And it also means, again, just briefly, that we tend to be people who also dissipate ourselves with our recreations. Again, how, much of, how many of our hobbies, how many of our recreations, how many of the things that we do, at the end we think to ourselves, you know, the truth is I just sort of wasted my time there. Or how many of those things are simply a way for us to turn off our brains and go on cruise control? How many of our chosen rests or recreations are simply an attempt not to rest but to check out, which is a very different thing? Scripture comes and tells us, and God comes and tells us, that we are a people who need rest. Okay, so it's a command. Uh, It's got a lesson to teach us, a message to teach us about our inability to stop working, to stop recreating in the ways we do all week. Uh, But then the third thing, it comes as a gift to us. And again, this may not feel like a gift, but, but... Think about this in the context of the Ten Commandments. As we've been trying to say each week, and we'll continue through the series on the Ten Commandments, these are all a gift to us. They are all um, an expression of God's goodness to us. But you know how we tend to think about them, and certainly the world around us tends to think about them. The the, the Ten Commandments are just God's gruesome rules to make life difficult for us. Okay, so take that sort of cultural uh, picture for a minute. Ten Commandments are God's... Rules that are meant to make life hard for us. And then we say about one of those, and that God who wants to make so our life so hard on us, he tells us to rest one day in seven. Can you believe the nerve? I mean, God can't win. I mean, think about it. On the one hand, criticism for all for these rules. On the other, he tells us to rest. Exodus 20, where we find the Ten Commandments, in its cultural background of the ancient Near East, uh, there are a lot of parallels with uh, a very well-known form of treaty that was found in the Old Testament and in the ancient Near East. And here's how it would work out. Let's say, uh, you know, n- nearby neighboring king comes with his army and conquers your country, and you're now subject to him. Well, what the king would then do is he would write up a... a uh, you know, a document that said, here are all of your responsibilities to me because you are now my vassal people. And here are my responsibilities to you as your high king who oversees you. Here are all the things you have to do, and, and here's sort of the basics of the protection that I'm supposed to provide for you. And everybody signs off on that. And uh, for this new vassal nation, if you were to break the terms of that treaty, you're inviting that king to come in and utterly wipe you out. Okay, so there is this treaty structure, and much of what happens in Exodus 20 uh, linguistically is, is structured around that same kind of treaty system. This is, this is a treaty between a king and his people, not a king coming in and violently overthrowing, but God the king coming in and setting his people free and putting together these commandments as a part of this treaty that he's making with his people. Now, here's why I bother to tell you all that. Uh, imagine if back in your situation if you've been conquered by the nearby king and he gives you the list of things that you must now do as his vassal state. What are the odds that one of those things is going to be, and you know, guys, I really want you to make sure you rest. That's important to me for all the people that I've conquered. You wouldn't have seen it. But here we have God, the true high king, coming to his people and saying, you are so valuable to me. 
that I want you to rest. You've spent a lifetime in slavery. Let me bring you out of that and teach you what real life is supposed to be. Labor that is good and fruitful. And rest that is really restorative for you. God gives us all of these commands, and he gives us this one in particular, because he loves us. Because he cares for his children. And we respond often as children do. You know what it's like for the typical toddler. Run 100 miles an hour. As soon as you have to tell them they have to go to bed, it's no. So they run themselves into the ground. You know how that happens when you're supposed to take a nap. I've often thought, if only I had somebody standing over my life that said to me each day, you need to go take a nap. Um, But we are so often like that frenetic toddler who just can't slow down and who honestly really doesn't know what is best for them. This is a gift. And we see two hints of this even in in the way it's given to us. Look at verse 11 when uh, God explains the foundation for the fourth commandment. He says, uh, you know, God, he goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, and he says, you know, in, in six days God created the world, and on the seventh day he rested. He says this is the pattern that God himself has set up. God himself has rested from his labor, and he invites us into that very same rest to get a taste of it one day a week. Because we are people who image our God, who reflect him to the world, who, who um, follow after him. And so part of the way we image him is resting as he did. It's an imitation of God himself. So it's rooted in creation. It's also rooted in God's salvation. That's why every week we read the prologue to the Ten Commandments. Verse 2. Before God tells them one single thing about what they're supposed to do, he says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the God who has come and saved you. And now I'm going to teach you what it means to live in my kingdom. Not so that you can earn it, not so that you can find your way in, but because I have brought you in. And I'm now teaching you how to live, to finally live rightly and live in a way that is fully human. It's interesting that the Ten Commandments are given a second time in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, right before Moses' Moses' death, he gives the Ten Commandments again to the next generation of Israelites. And when he's reading through the Ten Commandments at the Fourth Commandment, whereas here it says... The reason is because God rested on the seventh day. In in Deuteronomy, he gives a different reason. Listen to this. Uh, He says, you know, you shall rest in the same way. And then Deuteronomy 5.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What does he say? I want you to keep this because I want you to remember that you were slaves and you were slaves no longer. I want you to keep this because it is a sign before you that I have set you free. I want you to enter in to my rest. And it's the same rest as we come to the New Testament and begin to see this play out in all its fullness that we find in Jesus himself. The rest that Jesus comes to give us in its fullness. He comes to bear our sin and to set us free. Listen to these what are likely very familiar verses from Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says this, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The rest that Exodus points us to 
is the rest that we see won for us in Jesus. Now, for us who are following Jesus, much like the Israelites, life is still a journey in the wilderness. And our ultimate rest still awaits us. But it's coming. And every Sunday when we stop and rest, we're looking ahead to that great day. Not only hoping for it and remembering that it's coming, we're actually tasting it. When we're able to put our work down, when we're able to put our distractions down, when we're able to enjoy the worship of our God, when we're able to enjoy a day with our families, when we're able to uh, enjoy our friends and put our feet up and not have to bow down to the slave masters of our world to remember that we are a people who have been set free. Now, I understand that keeping this commandment is difficult for us. And it was difficult for the Israelites, these very same people who have just been rescued from slavery. A few chapters back, Exodus 16, they're out in the desert. It's a passage we looked at a number of weeks ago. And they're hungry and they don't have any food. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide food for you. You're going to come out in the morning and there's going to be this stuff on the ground and you're going to make it into bread. I'm going to give it to you every day. It's called manna. I'm going to give it to you every day except on the Sabbath. And so instead, the day before the Sabbath, I want you to go collect twice as much so you'll have enough to see you through. So people go and collect it. But, and then it comes to the Sabbath day. And some people still go out of their tents to look for it and try to gather more. Why? Because they, they've just been set free from Egypt. They've just come through the Red Sea. But they still have not learned to trust that their God loves them and is providing for them. And that there is freedom for them in following his commands. They had not learned that lesson yet. And it's one they desperately needed to learn. About four years, three and a half years ago, uh, my first semester with uh, working with William and Mary students with uh, Reform University Fellowship, we, we were going through the book of Mark. And in Mark chapter 2, we talked about this, the story where Jesus and his disciples are walking through these grain fields. And it's on Sabbath, and, and his uh, disciples are hungry, so they start to pick some of the heads of grain and rub it between their hands to get the grain out and eat it. And the Pharisees uh, see them, and, and they start to complain because harvesting is, is work and it's inappropriate. And, and so they get in this conversation about what's, what is and what isn't appropriate on the Sabbath. Uh, and Jesus, uh, at this point, says to them, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. This day is about me. So as we talked about this as with this group of students, talked about what, is it, what would it mean for you to actually keep the Sabbath? What would it mean for you to actually rest on Sunday? And of course, in a student context, what would it mean for you to not study on a Sunday? Okay, you would, William and Mary students, you, you would think I had plunged a dagger straight into their hearts. They were more receptive than that. But, I, you know, it was interesting to me. About a week or so later, uh, two, two of our students were over at our house, and we got into this conversation. They said, you know, that sermon you, you preached when you talked about resting, it has revolutionized our lives. And these two students said, okay, w- we finally realized that we really have to do that, and we're, we're supposed to. And so what we did, he said, usually our experience was we, we stayed out too late on Saturday night, and we were tired, and we came to church, and we were fighting to stay awake and dreading the fact that we had to go back, eat lunch, and then study the rest of the day to get everything done, and we just felt oppressed. 
So he said, once we decided that we simply were not going to study on Sunday, what we, what we did is we went to bed a little bit earlier on Saturday night. I, I think that was one of their resolutions. Uh, and they said, we got up for church the next morning, and we knew that we were going to have a chance to take a nap later in the day. Like, we were fine. We weren't restless being at church. Went back on campus. We rested, hung out with our friends, and we were refreshed for another day of school. But for them, it was an incredible act of faith to go completely against the culture of their school and say, I am not going to study on Sundays. I wasn't designed to, so I'm going to have to figure out a way to order my life in such a way that I don't do that. Now, I understand for many of us, our lives are more complicated than they were for us when we were in school, um, but I think the same principles apply. Now, some practical suggestions. What does all this mean, really? What are we really supposed to do? Uh, I think even given the words of the commandment, we're not, we're not really going out on a limb to say that you should rest from your work on Sunday. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to rest. You're supposed to stop working. And that means rest. Again, remember, we've talked about a couple of categories from, for some works of necessity. Those do exist. But for most of us in most of the situations of our life, it means rest from your career. It means rest from your schoolwork, from your work around the house means rest from your home repair list. It means rest from spring cleaning. It means men help your wife rest by sharing and at times taking on yourself the necessary work of the children. It means rest from recreations that consume you. Is your recreation any different on Sunday? Is it restorative? Is it a way where you and your family, if you, if you live with your family, are able to enjoy this day together, to honor God, to be in his presence and enjoy each other? Well, if you're going to do some of these things, our immediate block is we think, I just don't have time for that. And you might be right. So what are you going to do? What has to change? What has to change the other six days of your life? Think about it this way. When you're going to go on vacation, especially if you have children, a lot needs to happen before you go on vacation, right? If you're my wife, you spend three days ahead of time packing. If you're me, you spend three hours ahead of time packing. But however it works out, uh, you know, certain things have to be packed, the kids have to be in the car, and you've got to make sure you have all the stuff or it's going to be, it's going to be a rough trip. It takes forethought for you to be able to drive out of that driveway on your vacation and then go rest. There was some work involved to get ready for that. I remember one time we were driving out of town a couple hours down the road. I pulled out my cell phone. Liz asked me who I was calling. I said, well, I've got, I've got one last call that I need to make. And she looked at me and said, that's just sad. <laughs> I said, yeah, it is. And the problem wasn't my work or my job. The problem was I hadn't made the call earlier. I hadn't prepared. Uh, and that has real implications for us throughout the week. How are we going to be able to rest on a Sunday? Well, it means we're going to have to do some work and make sure we do grocery shopping on another day of the week so we're not running frantic on a Sunday. It's going to mean uh, that if you have a long list of things to repair in your home, that you're not going to spend all Saturday watching football do it all Sunday afternoon. This hurts, doesn't it? How are you going to rest? How are you going to order your life in such a way that you can rest? Now, let me just ask one quick diagnostic question. I mean, in general, don't raise your hand and don't disprove my theory. Uh, <laughs> you know, but, but in general, when you look at your life, 
do you feel like you are rested and sort of in the groove of the way you were made to function most of the time? Now, if the answer is no, now go back to the ways you are currently resting or not resting. Go back to the ways you are currently recreating yourself. How's it working for you? Is it providing the rest we so desperately need and the rest that God calls us into? Maybe a question to ask yourself on Sundays. Why am I doing what I'm doing right now? And do I really need to be doing it? Is there something better out there for me? And then just last practical suggestion. Be charitable with those who work this out differently in their life than you do. Be charitable with each other. We are to take this commandment seriously. And that's going to lead different ones of us to different, different convictions about what that rest looks like for you and your family. Be charitable. And together, let's be a community that tries to take this one as the others seriously. Just to wrap up very quickly, I think we need to end where we began. God tells us to rest. And the question for us is, how are we going to respond to that command? Are we going to listen? Are we going to obey? Are we going to go our own way? Uh, Earlier this week, uh, I was sitting out on a chair in my little front stoop in my house, and I'm I'm looking at the street, and as it's getting dark, this guy who lives in our neighborhood is, is riding his bike down the road, and he's, he's pulling a little tow cart with who knows how many kids in there, and he's, he's got two little boys who are riding on, on these small bikes next to him. And one of the, one of the boys starts to pull ahead of him, and, and, uh, and so he starts to pull ahead of him, and, and the father uh, stops him and, and, and says, you know, you need, you need to ride behind me. And, and I can't remember, I couldn't hear quite what the boy said, but it was something apparently to the effect of, you know, why? And uh, here's what the father said to him. He says, because you're small and because you don't have a light and because you are to obey my rules. I thought that was genius. (laughs) (laughs) We're out in the street and you're too young to realize the significance of that, but you are small and you need to ride behind me and follow me. And it's getting dark and you don't realize how dangerous that can be. You don't have a light. I do. You need to ride behind me. And my rules are for your good, and you need to learn to trust them. And let me just finally close with this. Again, John Frame, commentator, says this. The good and the obedient life in the long run are identical. The good life we are looking for and the obedient life God calls us to, in the end, are identical. Let's pray. Father, we do repent of our restlessness. I do. Would you teach us how to rest? That we might be free to worship. That we might be to be free to enjoy the relationships you call us into. That we might be free to be fully human. Not that work is opposed to our life, but that work and rest are both integral parts of our life. And we want to offer them all to you. And the truth is, you say rest one day in seven because you love us. Help us to say thank you. Teach us how to rest. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.